In 597 BC, a young king named King Jehoiakim surrendered Jerusalem to the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Eight years later, Nebuchadnezzar would return to Jerusalem. He'd destroy it. But in 597, he wasn't yet strong enough to hold the whole territory. So he, he devised a clever scheme, both to weaken Judah and to keep them under his thumb. He selected anyone with influence. And these were people like politicians and merchants and artists and priests and military officers. Anyone that the people looked to for guidance and deported them to Babylon. And the idea was that without leaders, the people would submit to a conquering army with a minimum of hassle. Now, when this happened, many in the nation complained to God. And they said, it's not fair. Yeah, sure, we weren't perfect, but we were a lot better than those wicked Babylonians. And once they arrived in Babylon, they complained. They complained about the language and the food and the schools were lousy, the weather was unbearably hot, and the Babylonians were barbarians. But their biggest concern had to do with religious life. Where was God, they asked. The God of the Exodus, the God of the conquest for the promised land, the God of David and the promises that God made to him. How could they be a nation anymore without the temple, the place where God lived and where he met them? So they wallowed in self-pity. And the feeling only intensified when 10 years later, Solomon's temple, the central symbol of their nation and the sign that God was in their midst was destroyed. So how do we know how they felt? Well, they wrote it down. Psalm 137 gives us a window into their feelings. The poet writes, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while living in a foreign land? So what did they do? Well, they had a number of options, and some argued that they should assimilate. In fact, 130 years earlier, the northern part of the nation, the part called Israel, collapsed To back up just a little bit, after the death of Solomon in 931 BC, the nation of Israel split into two. And two of the tribes, Judah and Benjamin, became the southern nation of Judah. And the remaining ten tribes, the northern nation of Israel. I mentioned this last week. Neither nation had great leadership, but the kings of the north were particularly bad. And so in 720 BC, the Assyrians conquered them. They deported many of the people, others scattered to some of the surrounding nations. So when you hear someone talk about the 10 lost tribes of Israel, that's what they're talking about. And for the most part, the people in the north didn't retain their Jewish identity. Instead, they assimilated into the surrounding nations and disappeared as a people group. And that's what happens even today when a church or when an individual abandons historic Christian faith and instead adopts the beliefs and values of the surrounding culture. It's the way of religious liberalism and secularization. And in every culture, there are those who argue that if you can't beat them, then join them. But it never works. Assimilation means abandoning everything that makes Christianity distinctive. Now, there are times when we feel out of step. Those of us who call ourselves Christians and choose to follow Jesus Christ might find ourselves out of step with the culture around us. But that doesn't mean that we're wrong. Culture can be misled. Practices like infanticide, vivisection, and eugenics once had widespread popular support. But even then, at one point or another, the surrounding culture thought better about those things. In the same way in our day, there are popular social movements that one day will be reassessed and understood to have been mistakes. 
The second response, the second option among some, was to embrace false hopes. In every age, there are people who say what others want to hear. And in Jeremiah's day, the man was named Hananiah. He predicted in chapter 28 that the exiles living in Babylon would return in two years. Now, we don't have time to look at all of chapter 28, so I'm going to paraphrase just a little bit of of what he has to say. He said they'd return in two years, and Jeremiah said, I hope you're right, but I doubt it. And then he said, let's see who's right. If you're really a prophet sent from God, then what you've predicted will come true. And then Jeremiah made another prediction. He said, before the end of the year, you, Hananiah, will be gone. And two months later, Hananiah dropped dead. In the text that we're looking at today, in chapter 29, Jeremiah warned them not to entertain false hopes of an early return. He said, Babylon is your new home, even if it is not your permanent home. Now, a third response, a third option was among some, was to resist. In fact, some scholars believe that prior to Jeremiah's letter in chapter 29 to these exiled Jews, that there were those among them that had attempted to rebel against the Babylonians. And while they failed, what had happened is it had raised hopes among some, some that the next time they would succeed. Perhaps even as Jeremiah was writing his letter, some were plotting a covert or overt war. Maybe they thought, we can make life difficult for these Babylonians, so let's do this so they'll let us go home. But as you'll see, Jeremiah's having none of this. By the way, um, I have a friend who tried to do this uh, resist thing. When he was about 13, his family moved from California to Minnesota. My friend Dave loved Southern California. He's a very good athlete. In fact, played college basketball. And he loved being able to play basketball and baseball and football outside year-round. So when they moved to Minnesota, he was so miserable, he decided he would try to make everyone around him miserable with the possible hope that his family would see the error of their ways and move back. But at the end of the year, he was still in Minnesota. He was miserable, so was his family. But worst of all, he'd alienated himself from his classmates, his teachers, and most importantly to him, his coaches. He then realized a bit too late that his family wasn't moving back to California, so he was stuck in Minnesota had to make other plans. A fourth possible response that many of these Israelites had was to isolate. That is to disengage and do whatever they could to avoid contact with the Babylonian neighbors. And it's a strategy that some try today. Some try to create a parallel world with separate schools and clubs and media, all with the goal of protecting themselves from what they see as the corrosive influences of the surrounding culture. And in some way, we should all do this in certain ways. The ancient Jews in Babylon, what Jeremiah told them to do was to retain what was distinctive about them. So retain their Jewishness, their faith. But doing this in every area of life would mean mean losing any influence that they might have had on the surrounding culture. And that was something Jeremiah did not want them to do. And it's why he suggested a different alternative. One that they never anticipated. And that is engagement. He heard what some of the exiles were doing. That they were refusing to settle down that others were believing the lies of the false prophets and still more were threatening to to rebel, which he realized would lead to their slaughter. So he decided to sit down and write a letter to calm them down and give them a vision for their time in the land. This letter is a remarkable combination of common sense and vision for the future. And in time, it became something that future generations read again and again, reflecting deeply on the wisdom that Jeremiah gave them for those 70 years that they spent in the land. 
In this letter, Jeremiah speaks honestly and soberly and hopefully to a people desperate for any guidance that they could find in the face of their national catastrophe. He reminded them that it would be 70 years before they returned. So settle down, he says, and make the best of your time in Babylon. And here's how he begins his advice, his instructions for them in chapter 29, verse 4. He begins this way. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I've carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Let's just try to unpack a little bit of what he says here. First of all, he talks about building houses and settling down. In other words, don't isolate. Don't assimilate. Don't rebel. But engage. Put down roots. Stop camping. Don't rent. Build a house and make it a good house. And then he says, plant gardens and eat what they produce. In other words, be economically productive. Through hard work, he tells them, you'll not only meet your needs, but you can contribute to the prosperity of the entire city. And then he tells them to marry and have sons and daughters and encourage your children to do the same thing. In other words, establish strong families. You know, there are times when parents will counsel a young couple to wait to marry until they have jobs and some kind of level of economic stability. And without stability, some couples who've already married will wait in order to have children. But Jeremiah is telling them, don't wait. At least don't wait too long because sometimes there's wisdom in in waiting just a bit. But he's saying, go ahead and begin to establish these strong families. By the way, what Jeremiah says here is good advice, not only then, but now as well. Social scientists have empirically confirmed the importance of strong families. Now, it's not as if children from broken homes or those who grow up without fathers are doomed, but there's no question that children who grow up in a stable, intact family tend to do better. So the way that we can sum this up is to say that Jeremiah wants them to engage, to dig in, to invest. And if this were a Hallmark card, the caption would be, Bloom Where You Are Planted. In essence, Jeremiah gives them a kick in the rear end. He says, don't sit around feeling sorry for yourself. Get busy, do something. And then he adds an additional piece of advice in verse 7. He says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers you too will prosper. I don't know if I can uh, overestimate how unexpected this advice was. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. They must have said, are you kidding? Do you know these are our enemies? Pray for them, really? If you want to imagine how radical this was, just imagine someone saying, hearing that a Democrat's praying for a Republican or a Republican is praying for a Democrat or a Christian for a Muslim, or a Viking fan praying for the Packers. What Jeremiah asked them seemed sacrilegious. When Jeremiah told them to seek the peace of the city, he uses the Hebrew word shalom, which means much more than peace and much more than just an absence of conflict. Uh, The Hebrew word shalom is a comprehensive word that talks about order and health and safety and harmony and well-being and happiness. And what he's telling them is that God wants them to be an agent of peace in the city of their natural enemies. And he told them to pray for the welfare of those who deported them, to bless those who had just destroyed their homeland. It's the closest thing we have in the Old Testament to the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
And then he tells them what's in it for them. He says, pray to the Lord for it because of it, if Babylon prospers, you too will prosper. I think we underestimate how important it is for us to pray for others, even our enemies. And there's some important reasons why that's uh, good for us to do. Let me just give you an example from my own life. It was a number of years ago that I had a conflict with someone. I, I felt mistreated, misunderstood, and what I wanted most was to be vindicated. But I knew that wasn't both possible nor right, so I decided to do something that I'd never done before, and that was to pray for them. This person owned a business in an industry that was affected by an economic slowdown, so I decided that I would pray that their business would do well, even with all the industry headwinds that they faced. A couple of months later, I heard through the grapevine that they'd signed a relatively large contract for some work that had come to them totally unexpectedly. For a year or two after, they were almost too busy in the midst of an industry that continued to struggle. Now, I got to tell you, I have no idea whether my prayers were the reasons for their success, and it really doesn't matter. But what mattered, at least to me, was that during that time, my heart changed. I was able to let go of the resentment, and in time, the relationship was restored. To be honest, it's hard to go on hating someone that you've been praying for. It's really hard, but it's very good to do. Far more often, what we do is the opposite of that, and that is to dehumanize or to demonize those we disagree with. And I've got to tell you, I don't know about you, but I am deeply troubled by the political rhetoric that I hear from both sides of the political divide. It grieves me when I hear grown adults call another human being, someone created in the image of God, and they use words like sick and pathetic or deranged to describe someone else. We simply have to stop it. And perhaps the only way we can do that is to pray, and especially to pray for those whom we disagree with, asking God to bless them, to pray that if they prosper in ways that will bring about the flourishing of all people in our society, not just those we agree with. These are challenging words. And what follows are words of hope that have inspired many for centuries. Because this is how Jeremiah continues in verse 10. He says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for you in Babylon... I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Then he says in verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Jeremiah 29, 11 is one of the most quoted verses in the Bible. You can find it in countless Facebook posts, printed on inspirational posters complete. They usually have pine trees and mountain lakes and snow-covered peaks. Uh, you can see it cross-stitched on decorative pillows and even tattooed on various body parts, including this image. And, and I've got to tell you, I found dozens of images of tattoos, some tasteful and some a bit more disturbing. But as beloved as this verse is, it's also one of the most misunderstood in the Bible. And the issue here is context. We need to remember that first, and this was in verse 4, we read these words earlier, that these words were written to all those I've carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. I just want to say what we need to understand here is that these words aren't written to us, at least not primarily. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't lessons for us here, but these words aren't written directly to us. 
Instead, they were written to a people living under house arrest a very long way away from home. And they knew that their exile was punishment from God for their disobedience. In addition, in verse 10, Jeremiah reminded them that this promise would not be fulfilled for 70 years. So yes, God had a plan for their lives. And yes, he intended to prosper them and give them a hope and a future. But not at least to be fulfilled for another 70 years. And in 70 years, very few of them, if any, will still be alive. Some of you know that Kathy and I live in a condo, and a few weeks ago, our condo association had its annual meeting. Our treasurer presented a whole series of financials uh, to helping people understand where we were in our financial state as an association. And one of the things he showed us was how he anticipated our association fees would continue to increase over about a 30-year period. And one of our residents in his mid to late 80s complained. He said, so you're telling me that these fees are going to go up 60% in the next 30 years? And before the treasurer could even comment about nominal rates of interest and inflation, someone else blurted out, Roland, why in the world do you care? You won't even be here in 30 years. So with all of these disclaimers, do these words have any value for us? Or should we just toss out the posters, have the tattoos removed? And I think the answer is yes and no. What we need to acknowledge is that these words were not written primarily to us, but I do believe that they are still useful for us. So let's talk about how we can live out what we find here. First, I believe that Jeremiah's words here give us a roadmap for life's exile moments. If the essence of exile is finding yourself in a place you don't want to be, then many of you know what it's like to be in exile. And you may, in fact, be in one right now. As you can guess, you don't have to move a mile, in even a few feet to find yourself in an exile moment. It might be a challenge at work or at home, a conflict with a friend or a debilitating illness. It might be the dark cloud of depression or a deep hole of debt, the grief of loss or the despair of divorce. Whatever it is, many of you know exactly what it feels like to be in exile. These exile moments can last for days or weeks or months and even years. And in my experience, the question isn't whether you find yourself one day in a time of exile, but when you will find yourself in one. And then the question is, what will you do when you find yourself in a moment like that? Will you complain, try to escape, isolate, start fighting a culture war? The suggestion that Jeremiah had for the people in his day was one that I think we can take seriously today, and that is to take the long view. These words came embedded in a promise that after 70 years, he'd restore them to the promised land. And it's a promise that was fulfilled when 70 years later, the Persian king, Cyrus the Great, allowed them to return to the land. But in the meantime, they needed to make a life for themselves. In other words, even as we go through times of exile, God will take care of us in our version of a hostile foreign land. Understand that the long view allows us to also thrive in the moment. Jeremiah told the people to build, to plant, to marry, and to have children. In, in short, what he's telling them is that it is possible to live relatively normal lives even in the midst of enemy territory. Kathy and I are uh, much better as a married couple than we were when we were dating. Uh, we had an up-and-down courtship. Mostly, I've got to admit, it was my fault. And after a year of dating, we broke up. About a month after that breakup, we took a walk around Lake Harriet, and I even remember almost exactly where it was. We just rounded the corner on the west side of Harriet near the Banshell, heading south along the, the path. And it, it was around that time that Kathy mentioned something. She said, you know, I'm going to buy some new towels. 
And that seems like a totally random comment, but I knew exactly what she meant. Instead of waiting until we got married and filling out a bridal registry at Dayton's or some other department store, she had decided that she was going to get on with her life, and that included buying towels. So she was going to settle down and metaphorically build a house, plant a garden, and buy towels. And by the way, for a guy who was having second thoughts, that got my attention. We can even thrive even as we go through exile moments. I don't know about you, but some of the most important times of growth for me have come in the midst of difficulty. While it might at first sound counterintuitive, we can grow and even find joy in the midst of hardship. Thriving is great, and it's important. But Jeremiah had even more for them to do in the next 70 years that they'd be living in Babylon because he wanted them also to bless others. That's why he added the words we find in verse 11. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You know, there's a reason why so many of us love the words of verse 11. Uh, The words that say that God has a plan for us, a plan to prosper us, and to give us a hope-filled future. And the reason that we love these words so much is because we all want to be blessed. And on one level, that is not a problem. God wants to bless us, but he also wants us to bless others, even, as we've seen, our enemies. I don't know about you, but I get a lot more excited about being blessed than I do about being a blessing. And blessing my enemies, wow. One of the primary ways that we do this, by the way, is through our work. I believe, really believe, that our work matters to God. So rather than just thinking of your work as a way to earn a paycheck, think of it as a way to bless others. It can transform your work and give it greater significance and meaning. So whether you work in education or healthcare or business or the arts, you can make a difference in the world in which you live, day in and day out, Monday to Friday. Well, back to Jeremiah 29. I really don't have a problem if you want to memorize the verse. I did when I was in college. And I don't have a problem even if you want to put a tattoo on your body. But let's remember to keep these words in context. Not putting faith in the false hope that God will take away any suffering and bless us without end. But rather, let us remember that he gives us hope in the midst of whatever we face, whether good or bad. And that we must always seek to be a blessing to others. You see, what these verses do, taken in context, is reset our expectations. How? Well, by honestly reminding us that life can be difficult and we will have our exile moments. But Jeremiah also reminds us that we can learn to survive, even thrive in the face of difficulty. And he reminds us that we should bless others around the way, along the way. That's why we're to work to see God's kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Throughout history, this has happened. Christians have played the role of benefactors in a suffering world. They've cared for the sick, they've fed the hungry, they've lifted up the oppressed, they've welcomed refugees, they've worked tirelessly for justice. And that's why we have Methodist Hospital and Presbyterian Homes and Lutheran Social Services. And while these institutions may or may not continue to be explicitly Christian organizations today, the impulse that led to their founding came from the desire of faithful Christians to bless others. When you leave the worship center today, it's likely that you are going to walk past what some of us call the Jeremiah Wall. You can see an image of it on the screen. And in it, Jeremiah, the words of Jeremiah 27 are on that wall, where it says, Seek the peace and welfare of the city. 
Some of you have heard me tell how I first noticed these words in the Bible. I'd read them before, but really hadn't kind of grasped all that was here. And it was a few years before we started City Church when a young couple came and asked if I would officiate their wedding. And they asked me to use the words from Jeremiah 29 as their wedding text. Jeremiah 29, 11 as their wedding text. And I remember thinking, wonderful, what, what a great promise to carry them into married life. I was in grad school at the time, and so what I knew I needed to do was also study these verses in the context. And so I looked at the chapter and also at the book of Jeremiah, and I learned many of the things that we've talked about today. The 70 years, the promise that was made to an entire nation, not to an individual, the command to put down roots and bless and pray for people in their neighborhood. And then it all clicked for me. These were perfect words for a newly married couple. The blessing for sure in verse 11, but also the challenge to put down roots to pray for and bless their community. A few years later, about 70 of us gathered to talk about what it would be to start a new church here in southwest Minneapolis. And we too read this story and couldn't imagine a better vision for a church, a church that puts down roots and also commits together to bless for and pray for our city. So when you walk out of here today, read the words on the wall and leave committed to doing what you can to bless and pray for those around you. And if you do, I believe that God will prosper and bless you both now and for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the words that Jeremiah wrote down that give us perspective, give us a list of to-dos, and also give us hope in the midst of whatever exile experience we might find ourselves in. May we be people who put down roots. May we be people who build strong families, who are economically productive, and also pray for and bless the communities and the people that we live around. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.